Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 278 with Morton Hansen. I think you'll love this one because last time we talked about some hard-hitting science separating high performers from not-so-high performers with Clinton Longnecker. It was a top episode of 2017. Well, we're at it again with Morton Hansen, who is bringing it with tremendous results from his study about what it takes to be great at work. And not his opinion, but some robust research that explains 66% of the variation associated with work performance by variable. So you'll learn one, the seven key practices that outperformers do, two, how to work less while accomplishing more, and three, how to win your colleagues over to collaborate better. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we discuss here, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep278. Now here is the story with Morton, formerly a professor at Harvard Business School and INSEAD in France. Professor Hansen holds a PhD from Stanford Business School, where he was a Fulbright scholar. His academic research has won several prestigious awards, and he is ranked as one of the world's most influential management thinkers by Thinkers 50. Morton Hansen was also manager at the Boston Consulting Group, where he advised corporate clients worldwide. Morton travels the world to give keynotes and help companies and people become great at work. He's the co-author, along with Jim Collins, of the New York Times bestseller, Great by Choice, and the author of the highly claimed Collaboration and Great at Work. Thanks to Morton for sharing some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Morton. Morton, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, thanks, Pete, for having me. Well, I am such a dork for great research, and I know you put a lot of research into your book, Great at Work. Can you tell us a little bit about the five-year journey there? Yes, it took five years. No, it wasn't planned to take five years. It's just that's the way it is with research. I wanted to answer a fundamental question, and that is, why do some people perform better in their job than others? Now. There are a lot of pieces of advice on that out there. There are hundreds of books, and I found 200 pieces of advice when I cataloged them. So there's no shortage of advice, but I wanted to do an evidence-based inquiry to see what really matters. And to do that, we started out by interviewing 120 people. We did a, got some hypothesis. We did a pilot project of a survey instrument for another 300. We realized that uh, a lot of the things we thought up front weren't correct, they were incomplete or downright misleading. We reorganized the hypothesis, and then we did a test uh, of a survey instrument uh, of 5,000 people uh, across corporate America. Junior, senior roles, men, women, women are 45% of the sample across jobs, marketing, sales, industries, uh, finance, consumer goods, sitting in automobile companies, and so on. So it's very uh, a wide range. And what we have here is a combination of statistical analysis that can tell us, you know, what really matters in driving performance. And we also have a lot of in-depth case studies. So we really know what these top performers did or what some uh, poor performers did. So it's a combination of things. And that took in total five years. Well, that is epic. And if we just get to reap the benefits of, of all of that, that great work. So, so do tell, what are 
the key things that the better performers are doing when it comes to work? Yeah, what we found is that there are seven key practices that together count for 66% of the difference in performance among these 5,000 people. So think about it that way. Two-thirds of the performance difference can be explained by only seven key practices. Now, there are other things that matters as well beyond those seven, but they don't count for as much. So, uh, and that's the good news for all of us. It's not like we have to do 200 things right in our job to be a top performer. We can concentrate on on a few of those. And I divide the seven into two buckets. And one bucket is mastering your own work, and the other bucket is mastering working with others. And, you know, almost every job today, you've got to work with others to achieve. You can't just be sitting uh, and lock yourself up in your office. So you've got to do both of these uh, really well. Understood. Well, then, so can we hear what are the seven within these two categories? Yes, yeah. Well, let me just give the, the headline. And okay. So in the mastering your own work bucket, we got four of them. So the first one is do less than obsess. These people are hyper-focused, and then they go all in on a few things to be excellent performers. And the second one is what I call redesign your work for value. They don't just take a job specification. They actually go in and say, how can I create more value in this job? How can I change the role that I'm asked to perform? And then they create new ways of delivering more value. In other words, they are innovating how they work. And then the third one is what I call the learning loop. They're not just practicing 10,000 hours to master a skill, they're saying, how can I have a greater level of continuous improvement if I'm really getting good feedback, modify my behavior, and so on? It's the quality of learning, not the quantity of learning that matters. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one in this bucket is what I call P squared, combining passion and purpose, that you need a drive, you need an inner motivation to get going. And the combination of passion and purpose is what counts. So those are the, in a nutshell, the four in terms of mastering your own work. And then mastering working with others, there are three of those. The first one I call forceful champions, that really good people, they are able to inspire and persuade others to support their work. Because in most companies, you need the support of others. And these are people who, over whom you have no formal authority often. They're working in different departments. They're working in different offices and geographies. Yet you need their support. And then the next one is what I call fight and unite. I love this one. <laughs> You've got to have a good fight in meetings and with colleagues to, to have the, by that I mean great conversation, great discussions and debate, and not just be nice to each other and, and not being able to challenge one another. But then, of course, you need to unite, you need to commit to a course of action. And then the last one I call discipline collaboration. There is interesting observation out there, which is that people either under-collaborate and they often over-collaborate. It happens in a lot of companies today. We're just doing too many collaboration efforts. And so you've got to be able to discipline and just work on few but the right ones and go all in on those. So these seven uh, together count for a lot of the reasons why we have top performers and others are not. Now, for each of these seven, there are specific practices that you can actually engage in to be able to do this well. Well, yes, I, I would like to hear about each of those. And so then do less than obsess. You know, that, that's mm-hmm. reminded me of the 80-20 rule here in terms of, if I'm understanding that correctly, it's like you're zeroing in on the thing that matters the most, those key few things, and then just doing them 
you know, so obsessing so much and doing them so well, some might say, oh, that's a bit much, but it's a bit much at exactly the right places. Is that what you're after there? Yes, yes. So let me uh, qualify that a little bit. So the first hypothesis I had was you've got to focus on a few things. A lot of people have said you should focus. There are books out there saying that. There's the 80-20 rule. There are many other ways of thinking about focusing. But we got it sort of wrong because focusing is about choice. It's about setting priorities. And it's true, the top performers in our study did do that. They were hyper-focused. Now, whether that is 80-20 or 60-40 or 99-1 depends entirely on the situation. So you've got to be able to really, really have uh, focus on a few priorities. But what we found is that that is not enough. That is just half of the equation. There is another half, and that is the idea of obsessing, that the top performers were going all in, apply intense, targeted effort at the very few things they were doing. And we had people in our data set that were focusing. They were doing the 80-20, but they weren't great performers. It's because they weren't obsessing over what they had uh, left over. Mm-hmm. And so you got to be able to do both. And I chose that word obsession deliberately because it's a, it's a bit harsh. It's, it sounds a little extreme, and it's supposed to be. Because if you're not obsessing, over the few things you're focusing on, you're probably not going to do great work. And if you're going to do a few things, you've got to be doing them well, exceedingly well, because there are going to be some other colleagues out there, some other competitors that are doing more. They are doing five projects when you're doing one project. They're covering 10 customers when you're covering five customers. And the only way you can be better than them is that you're exceptional in the kind of work you do. Okay, understood. And so then I want to get to the point, I know you also have some good research when it comes to longer hours and and working Mm -hmm. smarter. Mm -hmm. So how does that fit into the obsession and the being exceptional part of things? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, we think that one way to obsess is just to work crazy long hours, right? So it's about 70 hours a week on average, for example. And that's not what we found. What we found is that people obsess is that they do work hard. In fact, there's probably kind of a guideline around 50 hours per week here on average. And that's, that's hard work. That's mm-hmm. not being a slacker at all. In fact, we, we run a statistic analysis, and there's a chart in the book that shows that if you're working 30 hours a week on a full-time job, it pays to increase your hours, you know, to 30, to 40, even to 50. So there's a big upswing in performance if you go from 30 to 50 on average in our data set. But from 50 to 65 hours per week on average, there is actually the the, the upswing, it, it kind of flattens out very quickly. You're not getting a lot of bang for the buck in that interval. And beyond 65 hours per week on average, we actually find that quality goes down somewhat. So there is kind of a sweet spot of of around 50 hours. And then the question is, what are you doing in those hours? It isn't working more hours. So what these people do that are obsessing is that they are paying attention to detail. They are going the extra mile. They would rehearse the presentation. They'd be very well prepared for meetings and so on. And you can do that if you're not doing too many things. If you're constantly running around, spreading yourself too thin, running from meeting to meeting to meeting, you can't prepare every meeting really well. But if you are doing fewer things, you actually have that time to go all in and saying, I'm going to be extremely well prepared for this meeting. I'm going to have the question. I'm going to thought about the topic. I'm going to read all the prep material, etc. 
now you're obsessing and you're doing far better work. Oh, that's good. Thank you. And I'm curious with that 30 to 50 hours there, are we talking about hours of like you showed up or, or, or hours <laughs> in which you're yep. actually doing stuff? Well, we just ask people to report their hours and ask okay. their boss to report hours. And yeah, in those hours, it could be a lot of waste. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's not effective hours, meaning the hours you're really working. I mean, there's so much waste, obviously. And that, and that is one of the problems. When you're working 80 hours a week, you're probably wasting a lot of those hours. And I've been there. When I started out in my own career, I joined a management consulting company. I had no real experience. So I thought I had a brilliant strategy for success. Work crazy hours. Mm-hmm. I was putting in 70, 80, 90 hours even per week. I mean, think about that. And um, I did well, but there was a lot of wasted time. Yeah. So the question here is, it's not how many hours you work, right? We, we have this idea that to succeed in your career, you should do more and put in more hours and work harder than anyone else. That's kind of the paradigm we have been sort of taught. And it's wrong. It doesn't lead to better performance. I mean, that's the point. It is to work hard 50 hours a week and then... It is about what you do in those hours that count. Okay, I'm with you. Well, let's talk about some of the practices for when it comes to redesigning your work Mm -hmm. for value. So you say you're not just content with, okay, this is your assignment, but rather you you push farther. How does that work in practice? Yeah, so first of all, we have to focus work on value, which is very different from reaching your targets and your goals and the metrics that you might be pursuing. So let me give you a brief example to illustrate the difference. One of the people we come across was a person who was running a logistics function in a warehouse. And his job was to ship this industrial products from their warehouse onto the corporate customers. And he was following one metric. And the metric was the number of times that, that uh, those shipments leave on time. So percentage on time shipment from the warehouse. And on that measure, he was really good. He had 99% uh, success rate. But then they surveyed the customers, and the customers Mm -hmm. said that only 65% of the shipments received when they needed them. In other words, a third of the shipments were late, and that is value. Now, if you're thinking about the value metric, when does the customer need the shipment, as opposed to my own internal metric, when does the shipment go out of the warehouse according to schedule? And so much of work today is around these internal-oriented goals, HR people delivering training programs, check the box, going to a meeting or making a customer call, check the box, medical doctors, physicians, use the metric of the number of patients seen in the hour during a day. That's what gets you reimbursed. (laughs) Right? Right. Versus uh, the number of times I actually had an accurate diagnosis and the right kind of treatment. These are more difficult to to track, but those are the real value metrics, and we don't. So we we sort of have the wrong metrics. So what you have to do is get out of that kind of metric problem and say, okay, in my job, if I'm sitting and I'm a software coder sitting in Ford Motor Company and I'm in charge of delivering some kind of feature for a product, what is the value I can create in this job? And every job has a value creation potential, meaning who are the beneficiaries of my work output and how can I create far more benefit? So that shipment person in that warehouse then shifted the task to on-time delivery by the customer metric, not his own metric. And now you have to redesign how you work. 
right? Your schedule has to be different. You have different targets. You need to have different metrics and so on. Oh, that is so good, Bort. You're bringing me back to when I was doing some strategy consulting with the Bridgespan group and hmm? we, we harped on again and again, outputs versus outcomes. They are not the same thing. And you got to get your head on straight with that. That is so good. Beneficiaries and benefits, uh, well articulated. I, I like it. So, and I think a lot of times that requires you to proactively say, hey, boss, this isn't, I don't know, you got to say it nicer, I guess. <laughs> it's like, you know, just hitting that target is, doesn't sound like it will optimally delight right. the customer or, or what we're really going for here. Yes, exactly. That is exactly the point. And so we're trying to, you're trying to get that. The value metric is, is kind of what you're looking for. And it requires you to maybe re-educate your boss. It requires you to re-educate maybe uh, the customer of your product. So there are a number of ways in which you can do this uh, far better. And it's a challenge, but it can clearly be done. And you need to be more creative in your job. And, and that is a key thing. Okay, I like it. Now let's talk about the learning loop. You say it's important that you don't just you know, gain mastery at something, but you be a little bit more strategic in the learning. How's that go? Yeah, so the top performers are very, very good at uh, practicing high-quality learning. You know, it's that idea that you should practice for 10,000 hours and you will master a skill. That's about the quantity of learning. Now, in a learning loop, it's about seeking, doing something, measuring the outcome, seeking feedback, and modifying. Now, uh, give an example. Uh, we had a supervisor at a hospital, and she was in charge of about 20 people to deliver all the food services to the patient in this hospital. And they weren't doing so well. The food was kind of late. It was cold. It didn't get there on time, etc. And she was trying to get her staff to propose more ideas for how they could improve. So she got her staff together in a huddle, and she asked for improvements, and she didn't really get any ideas. In other words, she weren't leading those huddles, those staff meetings, really well. And then she decided, I'm going to try to improve this. So she started out by, okay, what questions am I asking? She asked a question. And she gets very little response. And then she got some feedback on the questions she had asked. And people said, you know, you've got to ask the question differently. It, did, it wasn't inviting. It wasn't open-ended. Then she modified her question. Now she got one idea in the room. And then she just dropped it. And nothing else happened. Then she got some feedback. She said, well, you've got to follow up. Next day, she asked a question. She got some more ideas. She got some follow-up ways to implement these ideas. And then she got some feedback saying, you know, you've got to be more systematic. Uh, you're going to ask different questions. You need to get different ideas. You need to enroll different people. In other words, constantly getting feedback on how she was running these sessions. And then slowly but surely she improved. And within 12 months, they had implemented more than 80 new ideas for how to improve food delivery. And in the patient scores, you can see it. They went from being dissatisfied to highly satisfied with the food quality. And now she's rated as a top manager in this hospital, and she is seen as a terrific leader, but she wasn't a year and a half ago. And this is the power of the learning loop. If you take the time to focus on a few skills and really pay attention to how you learn and improve, then you can really improve your performance much faster. And, okay. and we don't do it in business, uh, but we do it elsewhere, sports and so on. Interesting. So then you're applying 
the learning, not just to kind of every any skill that is is popular or you know the next thing in the corn fairy uh, lineup of competencies, but rather the, the things that are most important and just loop iterating on it again and again. And, and in this story, it was cool that she was getting the feedback. You know, sometimes that's that's hard to come by. Yeah, no, you're right, and you have to you have to seek it out. And she had a, a benefit of a coach in the beginning who said, you know, you're not doing it correctly, and so on. So we need the feedback, and you know, the feedback system in most companies is kind of broken. I mean, we have the annual performance review. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't work. I mean, let's face it. I mean, you can't just get feedback once a year. Then you might be lucky that you have a mentor, a colleague, or a boss that give you continuous feedback. But for the learning loop to work, you need to do something, and then you need to have immediate, nimble, and quick feedback. And then you need to modify your behaviors. It's sort of like on a daily basis or weekly basis. But here's the good news. What we found is that the top performers, by and large, only spend about 50 minutes a day trying to learn this way because you're doing the job anyway. I mean, the supervisors, her job was to run those huddles and create new ideas. But the way she had questions and the way she organized it, well, that was an additional bit of effort of 50 minutes. It doesn't take a lot of time. We just need to focus on a few things that we want to improve. Just to clarify, you say 50, five, zero yeah. extra minutes? No, sorry, 15, one, 15. five. Okay, that is yeah. unmanageable. Yeah, 50, is all, that's a lot. But okay. no, one, five. Yeah, 15. That's good. Yeah. In terms of like, so that's kind of a nice rule of thumb in terms of to keep the learning loop alive yeah. and well, maybe aim for 15-ish minutes. Yeah of kind of feedback seeking, reflecting, how could I improve this kind of thoughtful time per day and you're off to the races. Yes, exactly. And just okay. add one thing that use the power of one, as I call it. Focus on one skill at a time. Don't try oh. to do 10 skills. One skill, 50 minutes a day, get that quick, nimble feedback. And that's the way to improve on the job. And are you thinking to take one skill for a month or six months or as long as it yeah. takes? No, I would say about uh, six weeks, five okay. to six weeks, uh, depending on the skill, maybe just four weeks. No, no, you don't have to. So she, you know, she was spending maybe uh, several months, but there were different skills within leading, getting these ideas implemented. But first, you got to get the ideas out there in her team. And that was sort of like took four or five weeks to make sure that she got that going. Oh, that's good. Thank you. Okay. Well, now let's talk about a couple of the, the work with others. I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Forceful champions, I think we'd all like some more of those. How can you make it happen? Yeah, so one of the things that is important in today's workplace is that you need to be able to inspire and persuade others over whom you have no formal authority. Because we work with so many other people, colleagues in different departments, they may be your peers, but it doesn't mean they will support you. They have different agendas. They might be naysayers. They might even be opposing your project, your initiative, because it clashes with theirs. And so you need to be able to navigate that political landscapes, if you will, and you need to be smart about it. And so give an example of a person, a, a, a kind of a junior project manager in Dow Chemical. His name was Ian Telford. Now, he had his new business idea to create an online store for one of the chemical products they were selling. And so he proposed this idea to the management team, and they voted him down right away. They didn't like it. And in the beginning, he was very frustrated. He said, oh, or, you know, they're just the old school types. They don't understand the Internet and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but that, of course, doesn't get him anywhere. So then he started thinking, putting himself in their shoes and saying, why would they be against this? And then he realized 
that they didn't like this thing because they now were displaying a lower price online than some of the offline customers were buying. So, mm. in other words, and but no, they were getting great service offline. But nevertheless, there was now a fear that these customers are just going to migrate from the offline high premium, high service thing to this online thing. And so, in other words, their concern was completely legitimate if you took the time to put yourself in their shoes. And then he said, okay, given that, I can find a compromise solution at different pricing schemes. It will still work for me. And then he went back to the management team, and now they approved it. And what that story illustrates is that we must take the time to put ourselves in the shoes of other colleagues who have different priorities and get different performance metrics. And if we do that, we can understand why they might be against us or not supporting us. Yeah. It's the first step to be a forceful champion. Oh, right. So, so you get that understanding, and then I, I'm yeah. imagining. And then, you do, and then you have to tailor your yeah. tactics. Now, there are two parts to this. One is to inspire people. Now, it's about stirring emotion in others in the right way. So they said, okay, I am really, really stirred up about this. I'm excited about what you're trying to do, so I'm going to support you. And here, we often appeal to people's logic, rational mind, and we provide them with numbers. This is why we should be doing this. And that's not enough. Emotions are not, you know, you speak to the heart, you can't just use numbers. Give an example, a terrific example of somebody who did this. There was a low-level purchasing manager in a company, and he was sitting in the office of this global company in Germany, and he was giving this very boring task project to convert all the paper forms to electronic documents. You can imagine sitting on that project. Mm -hmm. And nobody wanted to support him, and he couldn't get the resources needed and so on. So one day he learned that the CEO of the company was going to come to that office. And he booked a conference room next to where the CEO was going to be for the day. And so then there was a break, and he went up to the CEO and said, introduced himself and said, I just want to show you something next door. It will just take two minutes. So he walked with the CEO into this other conference room, and there, on a gigantic table, was a mountain of paper, <laughs> from the table all the way to the ceiling. <laughs> and the CEO said, holy cow, what am I looking at here? And he said, you are looking at all the paper forms that we use in this company. And the CEO, and I spoke to the CEO afterwards about this, and he said, you know, there was this kind of visceral reaction I had. Of and emotions like frustration and anger, and how can we be so slow? Why do we have all these forms? And from that day onward, he received the support he needed to complete his project and be successful. And it's That's a good. great story because it illustrates you need to show, not just tell. If you're going to stir emotions, you're going to find a way through a pilot project, a demo, or a stunt like this one to show people what you're trying to accomplish. And that's a way of inspiring. And oftentimes we don't think, but with a little bit of creativity, we can easily come up with our own version here. Oh, that, that is good. And you're right. And it might just be a matter of, hey, there's a customers who are frustrated. And they're like, okay, yeah, they're frustrated. But as opposed to, you know, you could maybe get a video. Is like, look yeah. at the customer <laughs> like, and hear the outrage or look at the mess, you know, that she has to deal with because we can't, yeah. you know, modify our service in some simple way. It, yeah, those are great examples. I can tell you the customer is frustrated. Or if I show you some way, you're going to have that reaction. It's a great example. And you could, there was another person who said, you know, she was in charge of 
office kind of remodeling, you know, putting people into cubicles and, and change the office landscape. And she walked around telling people that what she was going to do. And everybody said, oh, I don't want to be doing this. It doesn't sound good. And then she sat down on a computer and just did a little mock-up on sort of like a visual design and how it would look like. Not even being an architect herself, she just did it on her own. And she started walking around with that photo of how it might look like. Mm-hmm. And people looked at the photos. Oh, boy, that looks nice. I'm on board. Right? Showing, not telling. So, so that's why the inspiration part you know, is persuasion, yeah. a little something different you want to talk about? Yes, it is, because you, know, you can inspire people, but if they're really against you, you need a little more of a forceful tactics here, which I call persuasive tactics. And uh, here, you, you know, it's about understanding why people are against you and then come up with some uh, political maneuvering. So it could be uh, a compromise. It could be uh, co-opting people. It could be basically challenging directly on. It could be uh, building allies so that you are actually getting, are able to overcome the opposition, not do the work on your own. So as an example, back to Ian Telford, he had another problem, which was that the uh, IT department in Dow Chemical didn't want him to build this new website. They didn't want to have this kind of fragmented approach to IT and this kind of entrepreneur out there in the one department doing it on his own. So they were against this idea. So then Ian Telford, what he did is that he decided to become a model internal customer for the IT department. He went to them and he understood their needs and he came up with a, and instead of being uh, nasty with them, he started using their language, he started using their forms. And when they first uh, got some customers, he called them up and saying, this is as much a win for you as it is for me. And over time, they became one of his supporters. So he, he did it by, by bringing them into his tent and inviting them and trying to understand their concerns again. And he won them over. And had he not done that, they will eventually have shut it down, shut his adventure down. That's called co-optation in an academic language. I mean, to be a little, um, mm-hmm. let's say, crude about it. Oh, I love so, it. <laughs> L.B. Johnson, the former president, uh-huh. apparently he said the following. He had invited one of his political enemies into his cabinet. And people were looking at this and saying and telling him, why do you bring your enemy you know, into your own team? And he said, you know, it's better to have this person inside the tent pissing out than a pissing, standing outside pissing in. <laughs> Apparently that's, you know, what he said. And there's some truth to that, right? You want to get people, win people over and especially your enemies. Oh, this is so good. Well, well Morton, I think I could chat with you for hours, but uh, could you give us maybe the, the one to three minute version of Fight and Unite and Disciplined Collaboration? Yeah, I can give you a short version. So Fight and Unite is about having better meetings. We have lots of bad meetings and people uh, report a lot of unproductive meetings. Okay, how can we make them better? Well, meetings should be for one thing only, having a great debate. It should not be for status update. A status update, you can put it in an email. Okay, how do you have a good meeting? What is it, two, three people, or is it 10 people? You've got to have a good discussion. You've got to have a good fight. Not a bad fight, but it's got to be a good fight. You've got to be able to ask questions and solicit minority points, scrutinize assumptions, and have a rigorous debate so the best ideas and, and arguments emerge. Then you need to unite. You need to commit to the decisions made, because otherwise you're just not implementing what you decided to do. That's the fight and unite. And that chapter really talks about particular techniques and tactics you can use to do that well. So that's the fight and unite to improve the meetings and then the, and your results because you have better meetings now. On the collaboration, I talk about the 
concept of discipline collaboration, which basically boils down to a set of rules for how to collaborate well. The first one is only collaborate on activities with a great business case, great compelling value, say no to the rest, and then set a sharp unifying goal around those collaborations, and then align incentives that people are actually uh, willing and able to work on this. So you try to staff it correctly and so on. So there's a set of rules to do that well. And with those two, you're working more effectively with others, and thereby you're improving your own results and the results of your team. Okay, I like that. And any pro tips on saying no to a, a suboptimal collaboration yeah. in a prudent, diplomatic right. way? Yeah, I do it all the time myself. So I noticed some very effective managers, they do it this way. So somebody might call up and say, we're starting a new task force and we'd like you to be on it. And then you're saying, okay, so before I do that, what are you trying to accomplish? What is the value of it? And if they cannot articulate that, right, sharply, then you're saying, wait a minute, uh, should we be doing this? So you're asking questions as opposed to saying, I think it's a bad mm-hmm. idea, I don't want to do it. Because when you ask a question, people are forced to say this is a great collaboration activity. Okay, I like it. Cool. Well, Martin, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and, and hear about a couple of your favorite things. Yeah, I think that just one more remark. What we found is that small steps can actually produce big results. So when you look at all of these practices, you might say, boy, this is a lot. I don't even know where to begin. It's overwhelming. And it isn't. Because what you can do is that you can start small and step by step, you will actually improve your results. That's what we found in all our case studies. So and that's a hopeful message. And I'm doing that myself. I'm saying I need to be better at this. And what are the few steps I can take in the beginning? And, and then we improve over time. Okay. I like it. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something that inspires you? Yeah, I think there is a quote in the book. And I was starting to think about, you know, what is the a great sort of way of, of, of talking about the do less than obsess? And it comes from Henrik Ibsen, who is a I'm Norwegian. He's one of the most famous Norwegian uh, writers and poets. And he says, whatever you are, be out and out, not partial or in doubt. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite book? And that can be fiction, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Beloved by Toni Morrison. And, and what do you love about Beloved? I just, I mean, the, the writing is so beautiful. There's oh, thank a, you. I'm in the store too, of course, but the writing is just incredible. And how about a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I have a bearing computer that has nothing on it except word processing. No internet, no texting. I take it to Starbucks and I can sit there and use it and I don't get tempted. So there's like literally no wireless card inside it? Yep, nothing. I I stripped it completely. (laughs) And if I leave my smartphone at home, I don't have any connection to the outside world. Excellent. An easy easy (laughs) technique, folks. Get yourself an old computer. You know, it's so funny. I'm tempted to just like swap out an old laptop into my same like monitor keyboard setup on my desk to, to yeah, have a similar exactly. like, I mean, I'd have to go all the way over to another room to get the new laptop and replace it in order to access the internet. That's fun. And, um, and it was actually quite difficult to get stuff off it. You know, somebody should come up with a service to sell disconnected computers. <laughs> oh, that's clever. allow us to focus and concentrate. <laughs> and how about a favorite habit? I think uh, that's a good question. Uh, what is my favorite habit or a favorite habit I have? I very much like to go for a walk in the morning. So I work and then I just go for a walk for 10 minutes and it helps me just um, uh, have a break, small break. 
And uh, I was reading Dan Pink's book, you know, when about the uh, timing of things. Mm-hmm. And I just learned there that there's a science behind it. If you have small breaks, you just, you know, you rewire yourself. Perfect. Thank you. And is there a particular nugget or articulation of some of your favorite messages that you find really resonates with folks and you hear it quoted back to you often? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I do have a favorite, a favorite from my own book. Uh, I mean, a nugget that I think is important and people seem to resonate with it. It's not the magnitude of your effort that counts. It is the magnitude of the value that you create. Yes. If we can live by that, we can have so much more impact in our working life without spending all that effort and killing ourselves in the process. Yeah, and it's interesting because in a way, what you say, it rings so true and resonates so much. And then in another way, it's like the American work ethic is like, but you got to work hard. It's like, well, not necessarily. If the hard work is producing greater value, well, then yeah, that's, that's good. But if it's not, it's not. Exactly. If we can stay focused on the value creation and not just the hard work and the effort, we can do so much more with our working lives. And let's face it, we spend 50% of our time, half our time on this earth as, as adults working. Think about how much more impactful we can be if we really apply that dictum. That's good. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? The best place is my website. We have some additional tools and we also have a quiz. You can take yeah. a quiz that takes you five minutes and you can score yourself against these uh, seven practices. Uh, the website is uh, mortenhansen.com. So www.mortenhansen.com. Let me spell that. M-O-R-T-E-N-H-A-N-S-E-N.com. And you can find a quiz there. Oh, excellent. And do you have a final uh, challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Find one specific thing that you can improve and focus on that one over the next four weeks. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Well, Morton, this has been such a treat. I uh, wish you lots of luck with this book and and much congratulations to concluding a a five-year-plus journey of research and synthesizing all these insights for us. Much appreciated. Well, thank you so much and thanks for having me on your show. The thing that really stuck with me from the Morton conversation is when it comes to the diminishing returns associated with hard work. And the key distinction is not about how many hours you work, it's about the value deliver. And that you'll note that the value delivered really starts petering out in terms of value per hour after 50 hours and then is straight up negative at after 65. So, I mean, I think if you're working too much and you need some research-based cover to push back, hey, you've got some right there. Maybe that will, will save save a marriage or or save your sanity or health if, if you find yourself in a over 65-hour, week-after-week-after-week environment, and this could be helpful for you. So, I think that's handy also if, if we're just prone to being workaholics or or feeling guilty for not putting in enough. You have a little bit of cover there from Martin. So I thought that was pretty cool and, and data-driven and helpful to consider. So again, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items that we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F278. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. The research train is in full motion here right now over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Next up, you got Dan Cable, who is another professor, award-winning researcher, who had discovered a few things. And one of the coolest, though, is how a one-hour intervention in the first day of work 
was able to reduce quitting by over 30% months later. That's like crazy, but it's for real. Until next time, in peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.